Chapter 1, Wayfair welcomes you to the Waberhood. Our hero, Titus Burgess, ambled down the stylish street of an enchanting utopia. A woman waved from a chic lounger. Welcome to the Waberhood, she said, where Wayfair helps everyone create a home they love. Titus stared in awe. Bohemian Boulevard, Trinsetter Terrace, Mid-Century Circle. Titus, hmm? you're reading the Wayfair catalog. Oh, you'll love Chapter 2. Wayfair's fast and free shipping saves a potluck. Wayfair, every style, every home. This episode is brought to you by the Historic Districts Council, the citywide advocate for New York's historic buildings and neighborhoods. For 50 years, HDC has been the only citywide organization which works directly with individual New Yorkers and community groups to preserve and protect New York's rich architectural and historical heritage, working with communities to landmark and protect significant neighborhoods and buildings and helping already designated historic communities to understand and uphold the New York City Landmarks Law. For more information, visit hdc.org or call 212-614-9107. Funding for this episode is provided by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council and Council Member Benjamin Kalos. Episode 331, The East Side Elevateds, Life Under the Tracks. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. Welcome back, Tom. It's good to hear your voice. It's great to be here, Greg. Happy partial reopening. Yeah, phase one. We're in the midst of phase one here. It feels good. Yes, it feels great. And it's, as the city finally starts to open back up, mm-hmm. we're going to do something, well, virtually at least, that we haven't been able to do in many months. And that is to hop aboard a crowded train. <laughs> yes, And in our case today, specifically a crowded elevated train with masks, of course. Today we'll be spending a good chunk of time in the 1870s and 1880s when the city was growing and changing at record speed. And New Yorkers were clamoring for a way to move about at record speed. Right. And it's easy to forget today um, because most of these have been completely erased from the streetscape. Um, at least in Manhattan. But the elevated railroads were the city's very first form of actual rapid transportation. It's funny because we do often talk about the 1904 opening of the New York City subway. Okay, That was mm-hmm. the year it opened. And that, as we talk about it as if that was a, a magical event. But mm-hmm. it opened... It opened, and indeed, finally, residents could zip around underground and live and work in very different places. Mm -hmm. But that was decades after the elevateds actually went into into service, um, which started in the 1870s. So decades before, uh, before that magical 1904 date, New Yorkers had already been able to move around and actually above you know, the mess that was the streets and the sidewalks of New York's. And they were they were able to get around New York great distances very quickly for only a nickel. Now, today, we'll actually be talking very specifically about two elevated lines that ran on 2nd Avenue 
and Third Avenue. Those are the East Side Elevated, or the East Side L's. Mm -hmm. We'll discuss how these Elevateds actually, like, really did help the city physically grow farther north. It's about the city's growth. It's also a story about immigration, because by the time of today's story, hundreds of thousands of immigrants, mostly Irish and German, had already moved to New York City, and many had settled here. And a large number of those people settled on the Lower East Side, and the city needed more space, mm -hmm. and it could only head north, because New York was just Manhattan back then, uh, but that would require a far more efficient way for residents to get from home to work, mm -hmm. and that would require the elevateds. So today we're going to examine how these East Side elevateds came about, um, and how they were constructed. We will also be speaking with an elevated superfan, Michael Morgenthal, who's led walking tours of these old elevated routes for the New York City Transit Museum, and he's led them for us as well at Bowery Boys Walks. So Mike will take us uh, in the second part of the show on a virtual ride aboard an East Side Elevated. And we'll consider what the effects these mammoth train structures had on the roads beneath them. Mm -hmm. uh, the Remember, people's windows along these avenues opened to these tracks, and stores did business down in the shadow and the rumble of these passing trains. So, all aboard as we ride the rails of the East Side Elevated Railroad. All right, Tom, this is an epic subject. We have a, a, an episode in our back catalog also on the Elevateds where we talk kind of generally about them, not specifically these two. Mm -hmm. But Greg, that was hundreds of shows ago. <laughs> it was literally hundreds. <laughs> yes. That is true. Yes. So, so, so where are we going today? Can you situate us? What's happening in New York City at mm -hmm. the time of the story? Well, these East Side Elevateds started service um, in, the, in the late 1870s and in 1880, but the elevated movement in New York had started a bit earlier. Um, but I am going to situate us today in New York in 1865, Okay. Here is a brief description of New York from an 1892 book that I found uh, called The Memorial History of the City of New York by James Grant Wilson. He writes, We have to remember what the New York of 1865 was. Above 42nd Street, it could scarcely be said to exist, being only a dreary waste of unpaved and ungraded streets diversified by rocky eminences crowned with squatters' shanties. Railway passengers from the north still left their trains at 27th and 30th Streets. Street railways were comparatively few, and there was no speedy and comfortable way of getting from one end of the city to the other. Below 86th Street, there were, in 1865, 25,261 vacant lots. So consider that. Wow, that is so unbelievable. So the uptown area was like truly undeveloped. Mm -hmm. And obviously there was no rapid transit to speak of at that time. Meanwhile, of course, as we know, even by this time, right after the Civil War, the city's population was really booming. Yeah. So blocks were being staked out in avenues and streets all the way up the island. And there was plenty of actual development happening in Midtown. But still, most people in the city at this time still live south of 23rd Street. 
and and most worked south of 23rd Street as well. So do you have any estimates about how many people exactly lived in New York during this period in this like post Civil War period or around the mid 19th century at least? I may have come armed with some stats, Greg. Good, good. Well, I knew it. Pre Civil War. So just consider this 1850, New York was home to 515,000 people. Okay. 10 years later, right before the war, that had jumped to 813,000, okay? So massive increase in 10 years. 10 years later, in 1870, just after the war... 1870, 150 years ago... There were 942,000, okay? But 10 years after that, in 1880, the city was up to 1.2 million. So in that 30 years, from 1850 to 1880, the city's population had doubled and would be 1.2 million people. And clearly, immigration to the United States, and specifically to New York, is what's driving all of this, Mm -hmm. right? You had people from Ireland, immigrants from Germany. In that first big wave um, Mm -hmm. that that we've discussed in, in details in so many other shows. And then this would greatly increase in the 1880s, in the in that next huge wave, um, with millions of immigrants arriving from all over Europe, from north, south, east, and west, searching for jobs and new lives, searching um, for peace, Jews escaping violent anti-Semitism. And so many of these people that would make America great would settle here in New York, which mm-hmm. is great. And they would find work here if possible, finding even a place to live, often um, on the Lower East Side. Or even just the whole east side, you know, the, the big stretch that basically encompasses today's East Village um, all the way down to the Lower East Side today and even into Chinatown. And we should note as well that many Americans were also moving to New York as well. Uh, the economy was booming in the city. The Industrial Revolution was, kind of, was revving up, you know, and Americans were relocating for work to New York. But that's, that is New York in general. But let us turn the focus inward a little bit more because we are focusing just on the east side here and the east side in the 1870s, okay, where there is this large Irish and German population. Right, and native-born too, all mixed together. And this would lead to some tensions, but you mentioned that the city's economy was booming right now. Mm -hmm. Now, we just recently did a show uh, when, like, two months... Four years ago, I'm, time doesn't mean anything to me right now, but it's like uh, recently. I do, I do think it was recent. Um, before the before the world turned upside down, yes, we did a yes. show on the shirtwaist <laughs> strike. Was, yes. yes, truly, we did a show on the shirtwaist strike of uh, 1909, and we discussed how New York actually dominated the garment industry and how it had for decades, even in the period that we're talking about here. Yeah, it employed so many immigrants. And there were all kinds of other factories here in the 1870s as well, plus shipping and exporting, warehousing. And many of these newly arrived immigrants found jobs in these industries, and many found them through their association with Tammany Hall, the political machine that was running the city at the time. And of course, Greg, who was running Tammany in 1870? Why, that's Mr. William Tweed. <laughs> yes, it is. William Boss Tweed. Yeah, 1870 is prime tweed time. In fact, his famed courthouse that we did an entire show on, the Tweed Courthouse, 
had been under construction for already for years by the, by the time of our story. So um, on that courthouse, but then on so many other projects, Tammany and Tweed were profiting. But also at this time, incredible fortunes were being made in commerce and banking, um, in new giant corporations. And then others were also making fortunes in another booming business, real estate. Like, for example, the Astor family. The Astors who had actually gone from one business, the business of beavers, the, mm-hmm. the, 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 the business of fur trading, mm-hmm. to real estate, very firmly into real estate by this point in the mid-19th century. Yeah, and as the city was growing uptown, the Astors, among with many other prominent families, owned land all over the island, um, some of which, as we'll see, they intentionally left often undeveloped waiting for you know the most lucrative time to actually construct and develop so to go back uh we we focused a little bit on the lower east side and Mm -hmm. the area of today's east village but since we are talking about the east side generally meaning the eastern shore of manhattan alongside the east river what was happening in manhattan north of the lower east side well Much of that stretch, you know, along the east side was a mix of inexpensive housing um, and industries, factories using the shoreline, of course, for shipping, uh, ferry services. There was a lot of undeveloped land. Um, Remember um, in the Stytown show that we did recently, the Gas House District? Yeah, there were these enormous gas storage tanks mm-hmm. in the neighborhood, well, on the spot of where the Stytown housing development is today. Mm-hmm. And of course, the little housing mixed in. Um, but that whole neighborhood, I mean, was dominated by those huge gas storage tanks and dominated, I'm sure, by the sweet smells that emanated from them as well. So that kind of gives you an idea of what this whole area was like. Pretty industrial then. Yeah, and and a lot of undeveloped land. Um, I was looking at a, a drips map of the east side from 1867. And as you get into today's upper east side in the 60s and 70s, there are lots that have been developed, but most of the blocks on the map at the time are empty. They're just waiting to be developed, often with very prominent family names written on those blocks, you know, like Skirmerhorn. You can see who owns it. North of that, however, you run into the village of Yorkville uh, from about 80th to 88th Street and from about 2nd to 4th Avenue, back when it was still called 4th Avenue. And this this village of Yorkville had been around since the 1700s, but by the 1860s, it had nearly 2,000 homes already constructed here. All right, so you've got us up to uh, pretty far up on the east side here. Move it on up here. Mm-hmm. So let's talk transit on the east side, or just generally. How are New Yorkers getting up to this area here in like the 1860s and 1870s? How are these residents, say the ones in Yorkville, how are they getting downtown? Mm-hmm. How did anyone get around, actually? Well, um, most of the options were pretty slow and pretty lousy. In fact, which is why so many people, you know, lived downtown south of 23rd Street. Um, There had been horse-drawn stagecoaches and omnibuses for many years. Um, But I'm almost not counting them in today's show, you know, because they were so slow. They were constantly snarled in traffic. And from most accounts that I read, you could basically walk faster than taking one of these buses. (laughs) Um, Which sometimes feels that way on the M15, you know, heading up First Avenue. 
So when did things kind of speed up here? Well, in the 1830s, New York got its first streetcars. Now, these were cars that were pulled by horses, okay, and that were on a track. And the very first line in the city operated from Prince Street all the way up Bowery to Union Square. Wow, what a what a grand journey. <laughs> I think you can walk that, what, in like 15, 20 minutes? Yeah, well, depends how crowded the sidewalks are. Yeah. Uh, but still, imagine that, like, what an improvement that was. You could actually, like, glide along the streets. And within a few years, that the, the train operator, the New York and Harlem Railroad, had actually extended those tracks in a trench from Union Square all the way up to 92nd Street. Okay, straight up the island along 4th Avenue. And they made it all the way up to Harlem. They were the New York and Harlem Railroad. By the 1840s, these trains actually had steam engines. So the horses had been replaced. And the railroad built itself a depot along the way at 26th Street uh, between 4th and Madison. But horses were still used on some of these streetcars, right? Yeah, this was the main train line, but 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 streetcars were still being pulled on those tracks by horses all over the city. By the 1850s, horses, in fact, were they were pulling cars up and down 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 6th, and 8th Avenues. And by the next decade, in the 1860s, there were 12 different horse-drawn streetcar lines. So New Yorkers were catching on to these. They were being heavily used. Yeah, um, according to a 1917 book that I have been spending some time with, 50 Years of Rapid Transit, by James Blaine Walker. In 1864, these streetcars carried a total of 61 million passengers in New York. You know, if the city had a population of 700,000 at the time, that worked out to an average of 87 rides a year per person on these horse-drawn streetcars. That is really impressive and yet also i must add that all of these streetcars were getting stuck in traffic you know i can't imagine the traffic situation was in any way acceptable to anyone no even if they were on rails uh yeah they were still getting stuck by the mayhem that blocked their way um which is why new yorkers you know were dreaming of some kind of innovative transit solution, you know, to get their trains off, above, below the streets, you know, and they turned their attention to subways, which by this point um, had opened in London. London got its first subway in 1863. Oh. And don't forget that it was in 1870 that a New York inventor named Alfred Eli Beach launched his famous uh, pneumatic transit company, uh, the the city's first official subway, um, even if it only, you know, ran for like a block or two blocks down by City Hall. And we have a whole episode in our back catalog, uh, number 207, if you'd like to get more information on Beach and that first subway. You know, it ran on pneumatic pressure, but our current underground transit system uh, was not fated to be powered by wind, (laughs) unfortunately. (laughs) Alas, no. But meanwhile, at the same time, around 1870, things were actually happening over on that train line that ran up 4th Avenue, the New York and Harlem. Which brings us to another 19th century tycoon, Cornelius Vanderbilt, who by 1870 had amassed a huge fortune through his ferry services and then steamships and then train lines. Um, And he bought and merged and consolidated many railroads together, creating 
the Mammoth, New York Central, and Hudson River Railroad. And this was the only actual railroad allowed to descend into Manhattan? Yes. Um, he basically huh, had yeah. a monopoly on direct train service into New York. And his steam trains actually descended literally into the city, which was not the thing that those crowded streets needed. Okay, additional <laughs> chaos. Yeah. Even if for parts of it, you know, the, the tracks were down in a trench, some parts of the stretch, they were at street grade. So after the Civil War, the city banned steam trains entirely south of 42nd Street which meant the passengers coming down had to disembark and climb onto horse-drawn cars and continue on their way. So they get off his train at 42nd and 4th Avenue. Right, where Vanderbilt would need to build a new station, uh, which started construction in 1869 and was finished two years later. And that, of course, would be the original Grand Central Depot. Correct. And because it was so dangerous, you know, how the, the trains were coming in sometimes at street level. In 1872, the next year, Vanderbilt sunk the tracks uh, from 48th to 56th Street and then completely covered his tracks uh, from 56th to 97th Street. This guy knew how to cover his tracks. Um, but by covering those tracks, he completely transformed and improved this whole stretch of 4th Avenue uh, which now had this this wide park-like median down the avenue, down the middle of the avenue. A beautiful transformed Fourth Avenue here, mm -hmm. and almost I would imagine it seemed worthy of a new name. Didn't it, though? Indeed, it, <laughs> it would be in 1888 rechristened Park Avenue, which was a name, by the way, that was already being used south of the station, uh, where tracks had been covered for for part of the way in the 1850s. And whatever happened to that old station uh, down on Madison Square? Well, um, because now by 1873, you know, Grand Central was in use, that old station and a neighboring station that had been built would be leased, you know, to various empresarios, including P.T. Barnum, who would, you know, transform it into an entertainment venue. And it would, uh, within a few years, eventually be called Madison Square Garden. So, Tom, you have really painted an epic vista here. I mean... Was that my biggest situate ever? <laughs> that is like a bird's eye view of, the, of New York in the mid-19th century. That is... We are situated with all of those monumental changes in New York. So then by the late 1870s, the city turned to a brand new form of transportation as an option to solve some of those traffic issues that you had mentioned. And that solution, Tom, was the elevated train, literally taking the train and the tracks that were, you know, on the street level and putting them above the heads of New Yorkers. You know, if you do think about it, if you step back and think about it, it seems like a pretty wacky idea. I mean, yeah. trains are really heavy. They're like <laughs> the heaviest thing you can think of, right? Yeah, it's almost a cliche of heaviness. <laughs> you have to think of how important, though, the railroad was to the economy 
back in the 1860s and then, of course, the 1870s. Many of New York's wealthiest families had fortunes based on railroad construction and others on products that were delivered by the railroad. The Transcontinental Railroad had been completed in 1869, so literally smack dab in the period we're discussing here. And that, of course, inspired more railroad building. New York loved its trains, and it knew how to... It knew how to accommodate its trains. It even knew how to hide its trains. So obviously, elevating its trains wasn't really then totally a far-out idea. It seems kind of natural. And there were actually smaller elevated railroad lines already in London as early as the 1830s. But nothing on the scale that New York was about to develop here, okay? So the first experimental elevated railroad in New York City, appeared on the West Side on July 2nd, 1868. The West Side and Yonkers Patent Railway, which was the product of an inventor named Charles Harvey. Now, this this initial train, this very first train, ran along Greenwich Avenue and would eventually travel up the length of 9th Avenue to 30th Street, where it would connect with that west side train station. Right, which was a a station that we spoke about in our Hudson Yard show from last year. So this means that 9th Avenue had the first elevated train in the city. Yes, so the 9th Avenue elevated was the first. Although at first, it was actually a bit of a financial failure when it actually opened to the public in 1870. It would be redesigned and reorganized the following year. And so then finally, New Yorkers saw regular service and got used to it. And this underscored the need for better funded, more competently operated elevated service, right? This only made it more popular. Mm -hmm. So eventually in 1875, a funding bill uh, called the Rapid Transit Act was passed by the state, which ramped up the city's efforts to give franchises out to private operating companies, w- of course, with state oversight. So then, with the force of that law, they built all of New York's elevated train lines. But today, on this show, we'll just be talking about the second and third avenue elevateds. Yes, and that's where we're going with the story. But I just Let me quickly mention, because in many ways it's the most famous, quickly mention that other elevated, the 6th Avenue Elevated, which opened in 1878. Now, on that older show on elevated railroads that we recorded hundreds of years ago, it actually has the entire thrilling story of this line, which featured a a rather unsung hero of the elevated named uh, Rufus Gilbert, who essentially designed the line and then got booted out of his own company once the service began operation. Isn't that always the way here in the (laughs) Gilded Age? Um, But why do you consider uh, the 6th Avenue to be the most famous or the most fabulous? It's certainly the most picturesque. It was the train that provided service to largely middle-class passengers. It took them to places such as Ladies Mile, Mm -hmm. which is the heart of the New York retail district on 6th Avenue. And then, of course, to Herald Square, which would become the entertainment district later in the decades here. But the same year that that train opened, so the same year that the 6th Avenue opened in August of 1878, another train line opened here on the east side. The 3rd Avenue elevated, operated at first 
first by the New York Elevated Railway Company, which was the same company which operated the Ninth Avenue. You got that? So the Third uh, Avenue uh-huh. is, is being operated by the Ninth Avenue Company. And listener, you will be quizzed yeah. at the end of the show. <laughs> it's going to get a little tricky, but uh, we'll give you a study guide later. And and just I'm sorry to reiterate, there is eventually a second a third, a sixth, and a ninth avenue. So you're saying yeah, the those, third yes. and the ninth are operated by the same company. Yes. So when this opened, when the third avenue elevated opened, it ran only from the South Ferry, so the tip of Manhattan, to Grand Central Depot on 42nd Street, which you mentioned. But the third was very, very different from those other two elevated on 6th and 9th Avenue. Well, for one thing, uh, the 3rd Avenue elevated went through very different territory. Um, Greg, could you walk us through, well, or rather give us a ride um, <laughs> yes. along the route, please, of the 3rd Avenue? Sure. So you get on board here at the South Ferry, which is the ferry terminal, which included, among other things, the Staten Island Ferry. Mm-hmm. Okay, And by the year 1886... The fare that you would pay to get onto this elevated would be five cents, and they would all be five cents, which wow. is cool. Which is yes. a price that commuters would get so used to that that fare would would carry over to the new subway service decades later, and last for decades. Can you believe it? Yes, <laughs> generations even. So this line would run to City Hall. But it would be just immediately to the east of City Hall to what is the Manhattan entrance to the Brooklyn Bridge today. So then from City Hall, the train would run up to Chatham Square, which is near Chinatown, Five Points, which you mentioned, then go up the Bowery, where it would head further north to where Third Avenue actually begins in Manhattan. So we call it the Third Avenue, but it doesn't actually get to Third Avenue until this point in Astor Place. And it's from there that it then heads straight up to 42nd Street, where a spur directs the train into... Grand Central Depot. Mm-hmm. Where passengers then could connect to Cornelius's Vanderbilt... Harlem trains uh, to yeah. head to head further north, or even a long distance train um, out of the city. Um, but what you you just described uh, cuts through some pretty populated neighborhoods. Imagine how crowded these quarters already were, and then all of a sudden you have this elevated train high over the streets, running up and down the streets. Well, yeah, I mean you. Obviously, you had the Bowery here with its lively activities, but you also had the Lower East Side, which you mentioned is the largest immigrant neighborhood. As you can probably guess, this Third Avenue elevated was a little bit inferior in decor than the ones on the West Side. According to the New York Times quote, the depots have not the neatness and elegance of the gaily painted bird cages on the Metropolitan Elevated, but as an offset to this, there is a prevalent impression among engineers that the movement of the trains will be less noisy. I really, I really find that hard to believe. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I, I'm hopeful that that was truly the case. But I mean, imagine like having a home, an apartment or going to a church, you know, along this route. And now you have to deal with the sound and the soot and, you know, the, the smells of the elevated passing by. 
We mentioned in our show from last year on the Eldridge Street Synagogue, mm-hmm. we actually talked about one synagogue that sat under an east side elevated train and just how disruptive that was. Yeah, and that was um, over on Allen Street. So back to your Third Avenue route here. It goes up to 42nd. There's a spur over to Grand Central, but it didn't end there. By the end of 1878, it had actually expanded up much further, up to 129th Street, to the village of Harlem, which was sparsely populated at this period. When this station opened in Harlem, according to the Times, quote, In Harlem yesterday, there was general rejoicing, and one enthusiastic storekeeper had the front of his store ornamented with national flags surrounding a banner on which was the inscription, December 30th, 1878, a glorious day in Harlem history. Rapid transit, an assured fact. That's quite a banner. (laughs) Yes, it is. (laughs) (laughs) So clearly celebrated In fact, that from the tip of Manhattan to Harlem on one elevated train. Can you imagine? I mean, what a ride. (laughs) But Tom, wait, there's more. Technically, that train made a connection to a horse car line, which crossed a little bridge over the Harlem River into the annexed district, Mm -hmm. which was an area of Westchester County that became part of New York in 1874. That is, of course, the kind of first part of the Bronx that became a part of New York City. Right. Now, this connection to the horse car line, this wasn't a very uh, efficient or convenient method of transport. It was even nicknamed the Huckleberry Line because it meandered so slowly through the annex district that passengers could jump off the car and pick berries and then jump back on the streetcar. I'm, I thought that I thought it was a Mark Twain reference like maybe passengers had enough time to, you know, jump from the train and paint a white picket fence. Well, I mean, technically, Tom, that's Tom Sawyer, <laughs> not Huckleberry, but yes. Oh, I'm always it was, confused us. <laughs> it was as slow as watching paint dry on a fence. Yeah. So, uh, so anyway, in 1886, an elevated was built on the Bronx side, uh, which was quite successful in purposes of getting people to the Annex District neighborhoods to live. Which seems like a really big deal. Yeah, in the case of Harlem and the Bronx, they were now connected to speedy transit as part of the city of New York. You know, they were they were being included in this and, mm-hmm. you know, not just connected by Vanderbilt's railroad or by these streetcars. Like, they were part of the system. And this is only half the story, Greg, because at the same time that this Third Avenue elevated uh, was being constructed, another similar train was being built very nearby, uh, the Second Avenue elevated. Yes, the Second Avenue. Yeah. Uh, I mean, look, today New York is reopening, and I'm like so thrilled about that. And construction is back in my neighborhood. You can probably even hear some in the background here. But that is nothing compared to what it would have been like to live on the east side between 1st and 3rd Avenues in the 1870s because you've got these two elevated train services. Yeah, so you're saying the noise during the construction of them? Um, Yes. But also, don't don't forget the noise once they were in operation. Right. (laughs) But what's the story of the 2nd Avenue? Because, I mean... There already was a third avenue, so why did there need to be another one a block away? 
Well, remember that there were two other elevateds, the 6th Avenue Elevated and the 9th Avenue Elevated. Mm -hmm. Those were two separate companies back then. Well, just as the 3rd Avenue Elevated was owned by the company that operated the 9th Avenue Elevated, the company that operated the 6th Avenue Elevated was also given the right to build their own East Side Railroad. And that's the one that's here, the one along 2nd Avenue, okay? That's confusing. I hope you got that. Basically, two companies that own four elevated lines. Mm-hmm. Okay. Each of them with a west side and an east side. Correct. Yes. And honestly, the ownership of some of this is really confusing. And since we're talking more the social aspect, we're not going to get into it. And it would be moot by the late 1880s anyway, because they would all fall under the operation of one company. The Manhattan Railway Company operated... By Jay Gould. Ah, yes. The old scoundrel. (laughs) That scoundrel robber baron. (laughs) And I'm judging then from our timeline that it really didn't take too long to construct these structures. The builders were incredibly speedy. In fact, I think all four elevated lines were constructed in about the same amount of time that they built one room at the Tweed Courthouse, (laughs) which, right, was being worked on at the same time. The entire Second Avenue elevated just took 18 months. Wow. So we've got these two east side train lines going up the east side through the financial district and today's Civic Center, both of them going up through the Lower East Side, Kipps Bay, Murray Hill, uh, today's Midtown East, and then up into the Upper East Side through Yorkville and East Harlem, and then both of them into the Bronx. Were these trains, I mean, the routes are very similar. Were the trains similar to each other? Well, there was one very big difference in terms of their operation that was really significant. The Third Avenue train actually ran all night, 24-7. Wow. Okay. So it was actually nicknamed the Owl Train. For all those night owls out there, which seems appropriate considering that the Third Avenue ran up along the Bowery. (laughs) Oh, good times in the Bowery, right? For some commuters. But one thing we actually lose with an underground train that we're all used to is the beauty of mid-Manhattan at night from an elevated train, because there are none in mid-Manhattan today. Many riders were actually inspired by these night trains. And even during the day, people for the first time could look out the windows of these trains and and see what the architecture of their neighborhoods looked like. They could look at vistas, see the skyline. They could peek into people's apartments. (laughs) Well, I don't have any figures, but I'm assuming that the sales of drapes and curtains went up through the roof during this period of <laughs> along these neighborhoods. But of course, meanwhile, over in Brooklyn, we should mention that Brooklyn also had its own elevated rail lines. Absolutely. The Brooklyn Elevated Company line and the Kings County Elevated Railway. Mm-hmm. They had two different ones. And, and like the Manhattan trains, because you know, keep in mind, Brooklyn was its own city. And like the Manhattan trains, they too would merge into one big company. Meanwhile, in New York, by the start of the 20th century, those east side elevateds would all be equipped with electrified tracks. Okay, no more steam. For these trains and just in time too because in 1904 came the opening of the first underground train the subway of the interborough rapid transit company 
So then within 25 or 30 years, um, the elevated train here had become really an integral part of the fabric of New York. It had become a part of living in New York City. But what was the experience really like to ride along an elevated train? And how did the train affect all of those new immigrant communities who were now living side by side to not just one, but two massive train lines? We'll take a ride along the elevated right after this. This episode of the Bowery Boys is brought to you by the Historic Districts Council. Dedicated to providing educational resources through this difficult time. All preservation school classes are available on their website, hdc.org, and on their YouTube page, as well as lectures, event highlights, and walking tours of neighborhoods all across New York City, including, which we're going to mention on the show, Yorkville. So for more information, visit hdc.org. And funding for this episode is provided by basic funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council and Council Member Benjamin Kalos. And now, back to our show. So, Greg, you're ready to ride the rails? More than I've ever been, trust me. I'm antsy here in Brooklyn. Let's go. Yeah, well, grab your mask. Um, I reached out to Michael Morgenthal who is a licensed New York City tour guide. He's the owner of Ray's Food and Walking Tours, and he's the vice president of the Guides Association of New York City. Uh, He's also a lover of elevated trains who leads walking tours along the routes of the old elevated lines. Hi there, Mike. How are you? Hey, Tom. Thanks for having me. Of course. We're so happy you're on the show. But before you take us aboard one of these second or third avenue elevateds, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and, and explain how you became so interested in these old elevated trains? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I've been a licensed New York City tour guide for 10 years now, uh, but I'm a native New Yorker, born and raised in Greenwich Village. But after I became a tour guide and was really kind of navigating around the city, uh, I was doing a lot of tours on the Lower East Side, and I kept walking past a building on the corner of Allen and Division, Allen Street and Division Street, and it had a old metal sign that said Manhattan Railway Company Station Number 5. Now, my dad, who grew up in the Bronx, always used to tell me about riding the old 3rd Avenue L coming down from the Bronx, but it wasn't something that ever really truly registered with me. But I kept Mm -hmm. looking at the sign and said, there has to be a deeper story behind that. And so I started doing some research into it, found out it was uh, one of only two surviving power stations on the island of Manhattan from the elevated era. And that just kind of launched me down the rabbit hole of investigating different elevated lines and their impact on the city. You were hooked. Yes, exactly. And this um, building that's at the corner, it's what, the the northwest corner of Division and Allen Street? Correct. This was a power supply station for the 2nd Avenue elevated. 2nd and 3rd Avenue. Oh, and 3rd. Okay. And so we're going to get to what all of that means but we'll note that you have given these elevated train tours for the Transit Museum, uh, as well as for Bowery Boys Walks. Yes, the reaction has been pretty enthusiastic. You have a lot of train lovers out there. Yes, we do. But now I'd love for you to take us on a ride. Let's get in one of these trains, and we're just going to imagine for a second that it's 1905. Okay, bear with me. I've created this entire persona. 
Um, we're down in Battery Park, and I am a middle-aged German-American guy. Okay, I grew up, imagine this, on the Lower East Side with my family, uh, but we moved up to Yorkville on the Upper East Side in, let's say, the 1880s, say um, 86th Street between 2nd and 3rd. And today, here in the summer of 1905, I have been downtown all the way down at the southern tip, and I need to get home. So what are my options if I'm in Battery Park and I want to take the elevated? Uh, sure. So Battery Park, you had access to all four of the elevated trains that ran through Manhattan, 2nd Avenue, 3rd Avenue, 6th Avenue, 9th Avenue. They all terminated kind of right there. But obviously, if you're living in Yorkville, the east side L's are going to be what is of interest to you. Now, let me back up for a second. Mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't called Battery Park. It was called South Ferry. That's where the Staten Island Ferry is right now. That was literally where the terminal was. The Second Avenue and Third Avenue L's, which opened up within two years of each other, 1878 and 1880, used to go back and forth with lots of different routes mm -hmm. uh, in terms of who got to go down to South Ferry and who ended either at City Hall or at Chatham Square, which I assume we'll talk about in a few minutes. But by the time we're talking about you uh, coming up in 1905, mm -hmm. this would have been the Third Avenue L that was coming from South Ferry. So I would have hopped on at the area of today's Staten Island Ferry. I would have hopped hopped aboard the Third Avenue Elevated. Yep, you would have climbed this climbed up from the street. When you got up the top of the stairs, that's where you bought your ticket to get on the train. So we hand over our nickel, we get our ticket, and we walk out to the platform. Uh, there's a waiting area in most of these platforms. Is it standing room only? Do, can we take a seat and wait? I mean, if, if you've ridden the, you know, the elevated portions of the New York City subway system today in Brooklyn or Queens or the Bronx, it would have looked fairly similar, except the platforms would have been much shorter. The trains were much shorter oh. than our modern day subways. Generally, uh, in the era you're talking about, early 1900s, only four or five, maybe six cars tops. Mm -hmm. And the train and the cars themselves were much shorter than what we think of as a modern New York City subway car. So there would have been waiting areas, uh, maybe a bench or two to sit on, but the service was pretty rapid. Um, every five minutes or so during peak hours, and then really only every 10 minutes or so during off-peak hours, and the 3rd Avenue L ran 24 hours a day. Wow. So not too much waiting around. Uh, the train pulls up. What's it like inside these cars? It certainly depended on the time of day and also what line you were on. The 3rd Avenue line was by far the busiest line. So chances are you'd be crowding in. So the lights would have been electric, as mm -hmm. were the trains. The trains were electrically powered starting in the year 1902. Mm -hmm. Prior to that, they were steam. They were powered by steam engines, and the lights uh, would have been gas lights. Were these trains comfortable? Uh, I think it was a mix. Certainly, there was no air conditioning, so... On a hot summer day, windows were open. Windows were open, but they were fairly—they were designed to be fairly comfortable, at least initially. Uh, I think the developers wanted it to be a fairly uh, nice option for traveling compared to what had been available previously, in terms of streetcars and the omnibuses, which were not comfortable at all. So the wooden seats um, had cushions on them kind of wicker cushions, which 
doesn't might not sound that comfortable. Um, it seems kind of sticky on a hot summer day. Yeah, uh, it might be, um, but it probably lasts longer than fabric. Uh, but the floors also had mats on them to make the walking a little bit more comfortable, although perhaps more treacherous. Uh, so initially, the idea was to try to have some creature comforts in there. Once the Manhattan Railway Company, which is the company that controlled the L's, came under uh, the control of a infamous New York character named Jay Gould, uh, they kind of started stripping away all of the luxuries. And of course, we should add that the views must have been spectacular. As we know from the existing elevateds today in the subway system, it's fun to be above ground. It certainly is. And imagine departing from Battery Park on the east side train, the Third Avenue train, and making your way up through Lower Manhattan, basically along what is modern day Water Street. And off to your right would be the view of all of the towering masts of the clipper ships getting set to sail. So you'd kind of be traversing along the water for a bit, but you're still in the business district and you kind of come across Wall Street before you started to emerge up towards uh, Chatham Square, which was the great uh, switching station. So it was certainly more scenic than what the subway would become, obviously. And businesses took advantage of that. Retailers, if they had multi-floor stores, would put display items at eye view level for the passengers passing by on the trains, which maxed out at about 12 to 15 miles an hour. So we're making our way up from South Ferry past the seaport, past City Hall, and to Chatham Square. Now, you've mentioned that this is a tricky exchange here, and that's because the second and the third avenue elevateds both meet in this one place, right? They meet in the one place, and you have to remember that the two lines were built by different companies. They Mm -hmm. were built privately. So this was the great switching point between the second and third avenue L's, and you had to pay a transfer fare if you wanted to switch from one to the other. Oh. Uh, it, It was not a free transfer. Sounds like kind of a noisy, chaotic place. A very noisy, chaotic place. Uh, the Times called it the great switching station where nobody, nobody knew whether to get on the train, get off the train, stand up, sit down, <laughs> or whatever else they were supposed to do. So it was uh, organized chaos. Yeah. Um, when I walked the route of the Second Avenue Elevated with you, I found it really interesting that there at Chatham Square, following the Second Avenue line, you continue on up Division Street, and then you hang left and head north on Allen Street. Now, and this is where you find that power station that you mentioned before. But of course, I can just hear people saying, but Allen Street, it becomes First Avenue, and this is the Second Avenue. So the Second Avenue elevated ran along First Avenue for quite a while. It did from Allen and Division Street up to 23rd Street before it made its way over to Second Avenue. Um, Never seen a pure example of why it was routed this way. Uh, I do know that there were some wealthier homes along 2nd Avenue around Stuyvesant Square. So perhaps there were some political forces at work keeping the L's off 2nd Avenue until it got a little further uptown. But we're going to stick to the 3rd Avenue. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm heading up the Bowery, right, Mm -hmm. until it joins 3rd Avenue. Just some kind of like logistics here. Uh, There are two tracks. There's an uptown and a downtown, right, that's right along Bowery. And these are above, at this point, they're above the sidewalk or they're in the middle of the street? 
it really depends where you were on the line. And this was all dictated by the streetcars that used to run at surface level. Guys like Cornelius Vanderbilt and other magnates didn't want the L's to come in. And so they earned concessions that the, the trestles for the trains wouldn't block their streetcars. Mm. So if you look at photos running up the Third Avenue elevated line, uh, where the trains are, they're they're further apart, they're closer together. In fact, uh, they're around the Grand Street, just north of Chatham Square. The trains basically were above the sidewalks, and the streetcars ran right down the middle of the Bowery. Interesting, and it didn't really interfere with this the the sidewalk foot traffic. Uh, it certainly didn't, especially downtown, mm-hmm. uh, and I'm and certainly as you made your way further uptown, but certainly in the overcrowded Lower East Side, it was dirty, it was noisy, it was sooty. Uh, I've read stories of people getting dumped on with axle grease as they're walking under the trains, mm. but it also allowed for a huge circulation of population, which was good for commercial interests as well. Do we know, like, were stores actually busier if they were along the elevated route? Uh, well, at just about every station, pop-up pushcart markets would form, oh. especially around the rush hours. New Yorkers are pretty intrepid. You kind of get used to it. I was reading an article that uh, interviewed a few shopkeepers in Yorkville, and they were asked if they how long it took them to get used to the noise of the train running by, and at least three-quarters of them said, oh, about 10 minutes. <laughs> Blase. Yes, exactly. So, so I, I definitely think it was a boon to a lot of these local businesses uh, that allowed them to have increased traffic and also opened up neighborhoods like Yorkville and East Harlem for residential development so that the locals could shop in stores as well. But the people who lived along that, uh, do we know really what it was like? I mean, it wasn't fun, I'm sure. Yeah. Could could passengers actually look into people's apartments? Were they that close? Absolutely. Uh, a lot of these trains, especially downtown, uh, ran down fairly narrow streets. And there would be next to no sunshine down at street level because the tracks went virtually from building to building. So if that's the case, the trains are going to be right up against these old tenement apartment buildings and you could peer right into a window. How do you think you could actually, how could you live with that? Would you just, do you think you just learned, was it a coping thing? You just learned to block the rattle of the train as it went by? You had to, right? What other choice did you have? There were lots of indignities living in these tenement apartment buildings, which were not just on the Lower East Side, but extended all the way up the East Side. Uh, So it was not luxurious living conditions by any stretch. And uh, I think you just, you got used to it until you, your family perhaps earned a little bit extra money and maybe you can move a block or two away from the L. But on this trip, okay, so we, it's still 1905. So we continue along our way past many, many shops, many, many apartment buildings and tenements all along up the east side until we get to the 84th Street Station in mm-hmm. Yorkville. We get down. Do you think it seems any different up here than it did downtown? I mean, in terms of the activity around the elevated station or just sort of street level traffic and such? Probably a little bit calmer, but otherwise it would have looked fairly similar uh, with the tenement buildings and the push cart markets, uh, which extended through Yorkville and up to East Harlem. Uh, so I don't think it would have been all that different, probably just maybe a little less chaotic. And probably at rush hour, 
a good number of people coming home. People who, uh, this being 1905, 25 years before, uh, when there wasn't an elevated, these people would not have been able to really live in Yorkville and work downtown without enduring some sort of horrid transit ordeal every day. Uh, absolutely. It's estimated that when the L's opened up, it cut the travel time from a place like Yorkville down to Chatham Square by two thirds of the time. So the trip might have taken four hours before, and now it's taking maybe an hour or an hour and 15 minutes. So, it, which sounds like a lot of time maybe to our modern sensibilities, but mm-hmm. it was really revolutionary for the development of New York City. I'm sorry. I Did you say it would have taken four hours for that? By, by omnibus or streetcar, yeah. You know, horse-drawn car, carriages on rails coming up, you know, and stopping every, you know, half a block or a block, uh, getting caught in traffic. It was revolutionary. Um, where can people find you? You can visit uh, my website. It's www.raisetours.nyc. And um, you can also contact me through the Guides Association of New York City. Well, Michael Morgenthal, thank you so much for being our guest here on the Bowery Boys and for taking us aboard the old East Side Elevateds. Absolutely my pleasure. Thank you. That was a great interview with Mike, Tom. It was really fun talking to him. You know, I I think we sometimes take convenience of our transportation systems for granted here. What the elevated brought and what the subway would actually build upon is this idea of timeliness and convenience. A person could now live farther away from their place of employment. Mm-hmm. Unlike those streetcars, you know, before the era of real rapid transit, unlike those These trains, both of them, underground and above ground, were, at least theoretically, they were on a schedule. And that meant that, you know, employees could actually get to work at more exact times. They were, in a word, reliable. And that kind of speedy transport was now finally available to the working class. The wealthy in New York, after all, usually had their own carriages. They had their own drivers. Later, they'd have their own automobiles. Mm Mm-hmm. Knowing that you could get to work on time, you could then seek out a more comfortable living situation. And that is precisely what many people did here, particularly to those who had been living on the Lower East Side. So by the 1890s, a great number of Germans moved to Yorkville, just like your imagined uh, theatrical persona (laughs) that you gave us in the interview, Tom. Thank you. You Meanwhile, in East Harlem, also along these elevated lines, uh, that neighborhood became a new home for Italian immigrants by the late 19th century. One source I read actually buttons down the arrival of the very first Italian immigrants to East Harlem to exactly the year 1878. The year that the Third Avenue opened. Yes, isn't that crazy? <laughs> and and then you also have the the growth in the Bronx, too. Of course, it takes a lot of different things to build a new community. We can't just say it's only because of these trains. Um, but we we really shouldn't understate, you know, how important these elevated trains were, uh, how they would spur development, construction of new apartment buildings. And, you know, that kind of migration within the city was only going to increase with the advent and the spread of the subway. 
Yeah. But at a certain point, like the balance tips from a fresh new idea, moving people around successfully, to all of a sudden an outdated idea that's too impractical and is wildly inadequate. By the 1920s, with the city now connected into a five-borough system of transportation here, and very sophisticated compared to what had existed 50 years before, these trains, these very old trains now, were quickly declared too inefficient. Even though they were faster than the old streetcars back in the 1880s, but they were not as efficient as the new subways. They were not nearly as comfortable as you know automobiles for those who could afford to drive around. The elevated train operators fought tooth and nail against the construction of subways for this very reason. They, they knew that this was kind of a superior form of transport. But finally, in 1903, so on the eve of the opening of the subway, all of these four elevated lines, right, all of them were taken over by the IRT, that private company that would open the subway. And... The IRT was actually, believe it or not, on these elevated trains. They were given a 999-year lease. (laughs) That's optimistic. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) And I like that they made it 999 and not a full thousand, you know. (laughs) Well, anyway, by 1913, with the signing of the dual contracts between the IRT and Brooklyn's Rapid Transit Service, the BRT, so Mm -hmm. because of this important contract, many more new subway train lines were constructed. There was a lot more funding, and many elevated tracks in the boroughs would then be incorporated into that transit system. But these Manhattan elevated lines, in particular, because there's still elevated lines in the other boroughs that are part of the subway system, but... Those that were in Manhattan, these elevated lines would grow to become the system's weakest link. Why? That seems so unfair. Why were they so bad? You are the weakest link. Yes. (laughs) Why were they voted off the island? (laughs) Well, so the transportation system is expanding. Okay, but the fair, this is an interesting story that we should just plunge into a whole show on the fair. Uh, The nickel fair. fair, The nickel fair is not rising at all. Okay, it was five cents until after World War Two. And the oldest infrastructure in this entire five borough system were these Manhattan elevateds. They were by this point unpleasant. They were always breaking down and a total nuisance for a great many. So by the 1920s, there were these loud cries to begin tearing them down. In fact, in 1922, we hear the first echoes of a much trumpeted plan here, which was the idea of tearing down the Second Avenue Elevated and building a Second Avenue subway. I'm sorry, did you say 1922? Yeah. People were talking about a Second Avenue subway. (laughs) Like 98 years ago? <laughs> it is incredible because of the what the Second Avenue subway means to people. You know, it's one of these great New York pipe dreams of the 20th century. I won't get into the details here, but I want to direct listeners to a book by the author Philip Mark Plotch called The Last Subway, The Long Wait for the Next Train in New York City, which is a book that details this agonizing 
epic of the Second Avenue subway. But essentially, because of all this subway talk, like the concept that a subway might be built, the Second Avenue L was shut down below 57th on June 11th, 1940. 80 years ago this week. Yeah. And the rest of the line, the rest of the Second Avenue, uh, closed on June 13th, 1942. Now, according to the book I just mentioned by Philip Mark Plotch, quote, after the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941, advocates for keeping the L were labeled unpatriotic when the nation's war production board urged city officials to demolish it because scrap metal was so urgently needed. In the summer of 1942, Mayor Fiorella LaGuardia, wearing an iron worker's helmet and wielding a spike-pulling bar, <laughs> ceremoniously began the demolition of the elevated line. Um, how dramatic and, <laughs> I, I have to say, kind of unfortunate. But I suppose in anticipation that the city would eventually fund a subway. Mm-hmm. Uh, finally, in 2017, New York did <laughs> open a subway, a new subway line under Second Avenue on the Upper East Side uh, in the neighborhoods of Lenox Hill and Yorkville uh, with a further extension into East Harlem that is planned to open between the year 2027 and 2803, um, <laughs> <laughs> or rather uh, uh, 2029. But let's back up a little because you said that the Second Avenue elevated was demolished, gone by 1942. Right. So, Mayor LaGuardia, he was no fan of any of the elevateds, not just the Second Avenue one. He hated all of them. He called them old, unsightly, and noisy. And then you had people like Robert Moses. Uh, who I'm sure was no fan of the elevateds. <laughs> he was he was really being a champion of automobiles, obviously. So you also had pressure from real estate developers, interesting, on the Upper East Side who were focusing their ire on the Second Avenue and the Third Avenue, right? Because mm-hmm. think of the real estate of Park Avenue now here in the 20th century and Madison Avenue by the mm-hmm. 1930s. You know, this was the new center of wealth, not only in New York, but in America. So those dirty elevated tracks were clearly hampering the growth of the Upper East Side. And by the growth, you mean the growth of the the real estate value, but in yes. terms of investments for the moneyed class who owned uh, real estate up in the Upper East Side, because there were plenty of people who were already living in Yorkville and East Harlem. Yeah. We're just not talking about millionaires. Yes. Um, but those with real estate investments were considering, in fact, like what had happened in the late 19th century when they buried the the New York Central tracks. And, you know, the area was transformed by getting rid of those unsightly tracks. You could uh, make the the entire strip luxurious Park Avenue. So maybe something similar could happen along 2nd and 3rd Avenue. Yeah, and you also had the perpetual complaints that lasted even longer than, than those on the Upper East Side, per, those complaints of those who lived on Sutton Place, which was an established wealthy enclave on the east side of Manhattan, but in the 50s. Mm-hmm. The rich who lived here, and everyone was rich who lived there, it was it was very exclusive. Uh, they wanted these tracks gone as well. And so with these cries on top of the tracks' relative inefficiencies, 
this is another reason, another thing that spelled doom for these elevateds. Not just on the east side, but everywhere in Manhattan. These similar kinds of complaints, right? So the 6th Avenue elevated was gone by 1938, and the 9th Avenue was closed by 1940, or at least the, the section south of 145th Street. So by 1950, three of the four elevated trains were gone. But you still had, at this time, the Third Avenue elevated running into the 1950s. Yeah, this old girl was, like, holding on for dear life, right? She was just held on for a bit longer, believe it or not, because, you know, the city was still waiting for that Second Avenue subway to be constructed. So they kind of left that up a little bit longer. Mm Mm-hmm. But when that seemed like an unlikely manifestation anytime in the near future, well, they just went ahead with the demolition anyway. And when was that? When did, when did they finally pull the plug and, and tear down the Third Avenue? It was demolished in sections between 1950 and 1955. The last ride taken on the 3rd Avenue L through Manhattan was on May 12, 1955, although in the Bronx, sections would remain open well into the 1970s. And the final, final ride on this line then was made in the Bronx on April 29, 1973. And you know, there's often great nostalgia for the 3rd Avenue elevated, um, probably because it was the last elevated standing on the east side. This is actually how the New York Daily News framed the nostalgia for this. Uh, the day before that final wistful ride through Manhattan in 1955. Quote, There's a death rattle in the clatter of the 3rd Avenue L, which brings sadness to sentimentalists and the leisured classes who, up to the bitter end, are using the ancient trains for transportation. But the final agony of the grimy monstrosity also promises bright sunlight and a new life to many blighted areas in the shadows of the last of Manhattan's elevated railroad. The L has been doomed so many times, only to get a last-minute reprieve, that most of the tears accompanying its passing already have been shed. But this time, the Transit Authority is firm in insisting that the battered old highway will be silent on Thursday. It is safe to say that from the Bowery to the Bronx, many a glass will be lifted in silent tribute at the wake of the L. And Greg, I think we should uh, join them in lifting a glass in silent tribute to the L. Cheers to the L. For stunning pictures taken on, of, along the 2nd and 3rd Avenue L, head to our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com. You may also find the Bowery Boys on a variety of social media, elevated social media railways, (laughs) including Facebook, Twitter, and on Instagram. We always forget to mention that people should subscribe to the show so that they always have the latest episode. You can find us on Stitcher or your favorite podcast app. A big thanks to all of those who support the Bowery Boys podcast on Patreon. Uh, that's patreon.com slash Bowery Boys for just a small donation a month. Listeners are helping keep the Bowery Boys in business. We are an independently produced podcast. And during this rough time, um, it's been a real lifeline to us. We could not continue to produce the show 
without your generous support. So thank you so much to those who've joined us on Patreon. You'll see if you head over to patreon.com slash Bowery Boys, uh, the different levels from just a couple dollars a month and the fun little thank you gifts that we have for you, including, of course, access to the two different patron-only extra shows that Greg and I record, the Bowery Boys Takeout and the Bowery Boys Movie Club. So uh, this month, uh, Tom and I are celebrating our 13th year of producing the Bowery Boys podcast, which is unbelievable. Uh, Wouldn't that be... So he's heading into seventh grade? Is that it? At 13? (laughs) If it were... If the Bowery... If it was an actual boy on the Bowery, he would be entering seventh grade. Uh, But we are, uh, for our patrons, delivering what must be called a baby picture because we are finally only for patrons because we don't want this out in the world. We're going to release, re-release, I guess, after all these years, the very first episode of the Bowery Boys. So that'll be, that'll be up and running in feeds uh, next week. And don't think less of us when you hear it. We were we <laughs> Please, were so yeah. young. I mean, it was 13 years ago. And I also want to give uh, an additional shout out to some special patrons, Helen H., Laura W., Joe M., and Nicole P. from New York, Jack K. from New Jersey, Patrick S. from Connecticut, John R. from Kentucky, and some additional new patrons, Rose M. and Mary C., also, a huge thank you to the Historic Districts Council, Simeon Bankoff, and his team there. And also, of course, to the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council and Council Member Benjamin Kalos. Thank you so much for sponsoring today's show and the next in this two part series, which will come out in two weeks. And finally, you can also join us, believe it or not, virtually in the streets of New York with a Bowery Boys walk. (laughs) That's right. You can take a virtual walk. Uh, Our guides are putting out some amazing things. We're doing our Broadway history tour, um, which is fabulous. There are even some like archived film clips. Uh, Jeff is doing an amazing tour. Uh, that anybody can take anywhere in the world. So uh, we've got that one, the Ladies Mile Tour. We're going to be doing an Edith Wharton walk. And of course, Mike from today's show is doing an an elevated train tour as well. So for all of these, head over to BoweryBoysWalks.com. And we want to thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Chapter 1. Wayfair welcomes you to the Waberhood. Our hero, Titus Burgess, ambled down the stylish street of an enchanting utopia. A woman waved from a chic lounger. Welcome to the Waberhood, she said, where Wayfair helps everyone create a home they love. Titus stared in awe. Bohemian Boulevard, Trendsetter Terrace, Mid-Century Circle. Titus, hmm? you're reading the Wayfair catalog. Oh, you'll love Chapter 2. Wayfair's fast and free shipping saves a potluck. Wayfair, every style, every home.